So for somebody who didn't know me to have so much belief in me was incredible. And when he died, I, uh, something just changed in me. And I, and I thought, you know what, if I, don't, if I don't go for this now, if I don't try and see this through, if I don't try and become a photographer, then what's the point? And if it doesn't work, fine. I'll go back to finance and I'll get a job and I'll, and I'll do that. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Paths, the podcast about people who have lived unusual lives marked by dramatic change or a sense of living different lives simultaneously. You just heard a little snippet of today's guest, Spencer McPherson. From the corporate world to professional photography, one thing that rings out from Spencer's story is the amount of hard graft he always put in. Join me to hear how he managed to turn an overheard conversation while serving customers in Café Rouge into a corporate job offer in London, and later how a chance encounter with stylist Stuart Weir and Stuart's death thereafter dramatically changed Spencer's life and set him on the road to becoming a photographer. We hear tales of having one pressurised minute to get a perfect portrait of Hillary Clinton, nearly being decapitated while shooting an elite snowboarder on top of a mountain, and how despite his obvious success, he still battles with regular doubts and fears in trying to grow his business. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. Huge thanks to Louise Bruce for reaching out to me and putting me in touch with Spencer. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, you could do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash patspodcast. Alternatively, you could leave a rating and review on whatever site you listen to your podcasts or simply share it with your family and friends. Any of the above would be greatly appreciated. Okay, over to Spencer. Enjoy. How's it going, Spencer? Very well, thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me along to this tonight. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a real pleasure chatting to you a week or two ago and hearing uh, the short version of your story. And I'm really looking forward to getting into the longer version this evening. For the listener who is, or the viewer indeed, who's just joining us, your story uh, in very broad terms, your story is that you were a very good student in school. You could kind of turn your hand to anything. But the first thing you went into was you got a law degree. And then you worked, having worked for years in Cafe Rouge as a waiter and loving that, you then worked in insurance a really interesting type of insurance that i want to ask you about that relates to law and legal cases and then you went from that to the investment world and kind of in the in the region of tax kind of schemes and so on with saint james place but then eventually you arrived at what was kind of a passion of yours all along which is photography and now you join us from the lovely looking offices of your own photography and filmmaking studio which is uh, called still moving right absolutely right i think i think we're all done aren't we that's the summary <laughs> <laughs> all right it's been nice see you later on so yeah um and now that you're doing this i mean we're going to hear all about this later but you've had some amazing highlights you, you told me about a few of them like you've photographed people like hillary clinton uh you were on top of a mountain photographing the number one snowboarder in the world You've done campaigns for like Bentley and Lotus and, and you know, big companies like that. So, yeah, you're, do, you're doing incredibly well. And, and uh, it's a, a very cool story of change. And, and there's also some really important characters along the way that I want to hear all about. So to begin with, well, actually, to begin with, you, you were just doing a shoot when I chatted to you last week, right? How, how has that gone or has that started yet? 
Yeah, so it's heading down to Devon. One of our clients is a fashion client, and it's partly owned by a chap called Phil Vickery, who was the England captain for rugby in 2003 when England won the World Cup. And when he came out of rugby, he looked at his opportunities and he had a great idea for a fashion brand and set it up. And then we've been working with them for about eight or nine years now and we do their photography and film. So I was actually heading down there to visit a place called Brixham where they're looking to do their next shoot. So we basically go down there, have a good look around, suss it all out, try and identify places that we can use for photography and filming and also try and make sure that we've got some wet weather contingency in case everything goes against us. So, yeah, I was just heading down there, having a good looking around, take some photographs of some different spots and then try and identify where we can do the shoot in a few weeks' time. It sounds like a very fun way to make a living, kind of, you know, scampering about the rural countryside looking for beautiful spots. Yeah, it's cool. It's, it is hugely varied. And I think that's probably the thing that I've taken the most from what my job is now although to be honest it doesn't feel like a job at all i i feel like i'm just playing around is the wrong turn of phrase but every day is completely different i could be doing yesterday i was working for a, a new motorcycle brand tomorrow i'm working with a fashion brand today i was doing a workshop with a client so every single day is completely different so whether i'm out doing a recce i'm doing a shoot in a cool location or in a studio or in the tiniest little box that's freezing cold every single day is different and that, and that is the best thing for me because when I, when I was working in, in the corporate world all of my time was spent pretty much sitting at a desk in meetings or answering phone calls and answering people's questions so yeah it's it's better now yeah it sounds it um not that that stuff isn't interesting too which i'll definitely be asking you about but um having got a little taste of what you're doing now i think i'd like to go back to the the beginning uh, it struck me with you, um, you know, that you told me you grew up in Cheltenham and you're, you know, uh, you have quite a kind of RP voice and you're kind of well put together guy. So it would be easy to assume that you came from like a long line of uh, middle class English people. But in fact, uh, your parents were, uh, your dad was Scottish and your mum was Welsh. And you said they both came from kind of working class stock. Yeah. And then your dad worked his way up in the factory that, that he worked in. They both worked in factories, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think my my mum was a farmer's daughter and her mum and dad got divorced and randomly her father moved to Cheltenham and she came with her sister to Cheltenham, which is probably unheard of in those days. I think children normally stayed with the mum and she stayed at the farm in Carmarthen. And my mum came up here and didn't speak a word of English, went into a school um, with loads of other children and obviously he couldn't speak English. So you can imagine what it was like. I think my grandfather became the local milkman, thick West Wales accent. <laughs> um, and I think they probably had quite a tough upbringing. And then my mum worked at Smith's Industries in Cheltenham, assembling stuff on a production line. And my father, I think probably, my father was a total rogue. He um, <laughs> He worked on the buses. He liked going for a drink. There's more conversations about him playing cards and winning or losing. He's always been a big fan of the horses. <laughs> and um, yeah, he worked in, in factories and he started off on the shop floor and over however many years, just through, he was a grafter. He was a total grafter. So he just worked his way up. 
you know, he, he didn't take a sick day, not one single sick day in 33 years of working for the same organization. Um, so when I was growing up, he was quite a, he was quite a hard man at work because by the end of it, he was responsible for about 500 staff and he would hire and fire them. And if there were problems or issues, he had to deal with them. And he was dealing with, you know, working class men that got paid every week and they didn't want to work, but the, the factory environment that he was working in was a tough, rough environment. So they just wanted to get in for the money. So the types of people that he was working with were not necessarily the nicest people to be working with. Um, and yeah, I remember being dragged around this pub, that pub, inhaling secondhand smoke everywhere I go. <laughs> um, and that was kind of the life that he was in. And um, my mother really kind of, and I'm understating it, took him by the scruff of the neck and um, kind of got a hold of his drinking and gambling. Because I remember there was one story, and I'm not sure whether I should even tell you this really. Um, my dad gambled the mortgage money so he gambled his salary, lost. Next month, he gambled it again, lost. So I think they were up against their third final demand or something for the mortgage. And he gambled and lost. My mum went berserk. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know how much, um, how much I believe this, but I'm sure there's an element of it. Apparently she put a steak knife to his throat <laughs> and said, you'll never ever gamble again and he promised because he was probably frightened um, and he gambled the following month the fourth month in a row but he won so big he was able to put everything straight have some extra money left over and do something nice for my mum and ever since then she controlled every penny that he earned and I think she gave him something like 30 pound a week allowance for the pub and the GGs on a Saturday and um, that was his allowance. And even now, what, 30 years on, 40 years on, he's still only allowed 30 pound a week. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating because I'm really good with money. And my mum was always very strict with me. She was, if you earn money, and this is when I first started at Cafe Rouge, it was you can spend half and you save half. As long as you're saving 50% of your money, I don't mind what you do with the rest of it. You know, she said like no credit cards. You're not having credit cards. If you want to buy something, you save up, you buy it. And and that was that was a good basis for me. Mm. And uh, saying that about your mum kind of brings me nicely on to the next uh, thought I have, which is uh, you were in a market in, was it in Wales? And you saw National Geographic when you were, when you were a kid. Yeah, so um, we would always go to Wales to see my grandmother and... Even from a young age, I was being dragged around various places. I don't like shopping and I've never liked shopping. And my mum loves to go shopping. So any opportunity I could be to sat, be sat somewhere and looking at something, I embraced. And I always remember going to the market in Carmarthen, your traditional old fish market, butchers, ragamuffin, Welsh cakes, whatever. There was just all sorts of stuff there. And there was a bookseller and he always had hundreds of National Geographics. And, you know, some of these were going back to the 1970s. And I would just go through them all, see which ones kind of caught my eye. They all had 20p written in felt tip pen on the front. And my mum would give me a pound and I'd go and buy five. And I would just sit there and 
flick through the photographs and read the articles and I just loved the photography and, and I always remember just thinking, wow, how incredible and amazing would it be to be in National Geographic? But, you know, I had working class parents that had made themselves comfortable by working hard and saving money and getting themselves clear. So that was all great, but there was never really an opportunity for me to understand outside of what they kind of saw the world as. And my mum did have on the distant side of the family, lots of, um, I say lots, I think there were two GPs in the family and they were always kind of seen as the gods, you know, they had the status, they had the respect. Everybody was like, oh, we're going to go and see, you know, our cousin, the GP or the doctor. And um, so it was always kind of, my dad was always like, be a lawyer. My mum was, be a doctor. So from a quite a young age, it was be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a lawyer. So I thought, okay, I'll be a doctor or a lawyer. And um, I kind of just started thinking, okay, right, let's do that. So all thoughts of National Geographic and photography were just not, not even in my head. I didn't, I didn't even think it was a possibility. I, did, I wouldn't even have known how to begin to make money uh, in any way selling images to National Geographic. And uh, this is something I actually don't know yet. Um, when did you actually start with photography at all? Like what age were you when you picked up a camera first? I don't really know. I remember a friend of ours who had an old Practica camera and I used to go and take photographs of all sorts of random things. And one day they said to me, I found a, a print of a really weird looking pheasant and obviously I managed to get close to a pheasant and must have been so completely out of focus. It was just a blur. <laughs> um, so I remember that. And I don't really know from that age of maybe seven or eight up to being a young adult at, I don't know, 18, 19, 20. I, I don't think photography was in my head at all because I'd gotten to that point where I wanted to be a lawyer and that was kind of all that mattered. So I remember becoming top of my year for biology and I thought, great, that's cool. But I hated the plant side of biology. So I thought I'm not gonna do any more biology because I don't wanna deal with these plants anymore. <laughs> um, and I did some work with the Crown Prosecution Service for work experience in sixth form. So at that point I decided I was going to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to earn that money. So photography was not in my head at all. Right. Uh, you, yeah, you mentioned uh, doing the work experience with the Crown Prosecution Service and that actually made me laugh because I did work experience with a barrister when I was about 16, but my main memory is of falling asleep in the courtroom <laughs> and having a big string of drool when I woke up going down to the bench. And I think that at that moment I knew uh, uh, like career in law was not for me. But yeah. for, for you, you went to uh, Swansea University to st and got your law degree, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I did my I don't know, six weeks work experience with the Crown Prosecution Service and loved it. It was great. You know, I was swanning around with the barristers all dressed up in their robes and wigs and reading case files. And it was fascinating. It was brilliant. And at that stage, I wasn't aware that there were different types of law. It was there was criminal law. And then who knew there was nothing else. I just understood criminal law at that point. So I'd done some, I think my A-levels of geography took me to Swansea Bay 
and around and we were doing all sorts of work on the sand dunes for the geography project and i thought yeah swansea's great and as part of that they put us up in swansea university accommodation for the three or four days that we were there on the geography trip so my only experience to any university was that and i remember that we'd been for dinner in the rat factory as we called it which is obviously the refectory <laughs> if anyone from swansea university is listening I apologize. um and on our way back to our rooms there was a disco going on somewhere and we all just crashed into this disco and we must have been 16 or 17 and there were a load of italian exchange students there dancing so we all just started dancing with this group of girls and then kind of that was it we all went back but all i had in my mind was swansea, swansea university is a cool place because they've got italian students and there's a beach there so i'll tell you what i'm going to go and do law at swansea and that's how i ended up doing law at swansea <laughs> decisions have been based on worse on on less um and then uh i'm curious just in the midst of all this i gather your time working at cafe rouge was was actually quite important for you that started when you were like 15 right yeah it was um probably my second proper job i remember working in some other random cafe but cafe rouge was kind of seen at the time as cosmopolitan and nice and posh and, and whatever um, and it was in a nice building in Cheltenham so I just went in one day said do you have any jobs they said fit out this I said fine I filled it out hadn't heard anything for two or three days so I just went back in asked for the manager and said hi I dropped in my CV and filled out an application form but I haven't heard that back from anybody and she said lots of people hand in their CVs but nobody ever follows up so because you followed up you can do a trial shoot uh, sorry you can do a trial shift next week so I was like, cool, great. So did a Thursday night shift. I was basically running. I remember her saying, you're going to be running buses up and down the stairs. I was like, what? That sounds really heavy. What do you mean running <laughs> up the stairs? And basically they had these huge containers like that that they used to put the crockery in and they were called bus trays. And my job was to basically clear tables, put them in the bus trays, run them up and down the stairs to the kitchen and run food around. So for my first a job at Cafe Rouge, I was everybody's whipping boy where I was running around, running food, emptying bins and polishing cutlery. And that's how it started. But I was probably the youngest person there. So everybody was three, four, five, ten years older than me. And they kind of took me under their wing. And I'd gone from being of school age, hanging out with school aged people to not having anyone older or younger really around me. And suddenly, I was hanging out with the students from university or the people that finished university that got jobs and this was kind of like a way of making extra money for them and i spent a long time in the end at cafe rouge and i just learned the most amazing people skills but the biggest thing was i learned how to engage with people and i was asking the tips you know and i and i just enjoy talking to people and i just realized that by engaging and working with people and getting to know people and building that bit of uh, a, r a rapport. Rapport, that's the word I'm looking for. So I built rapport with people very quickly. And um, it just allowed me to build random opportunities. I remember a barrister used to come in all of the time and he and his wife would always sit at the same table and they'd pretty much order the same thing every time they came. And they hadn't been in for over a year and they came in 
they sat down and I said, I know exactly what you're going to order. And it was two steak baguettes, medium rare, and two Cronenbergs. They had it all the time. And he looked at me and he said, how did you know I was going to order that? He said, well, oh, sorry, I said, that's what you had last time you came in and you were coming in every week and that's what you guys always had. And he was just astounded and couldn't believe it. And then I found out that he was a barrister at a major chambers in Manchester. And then um, he basically offered me a pupillage and said, you've impressed me. And this was off to a while. It wasn't on that first one, but he kept coming back in. And I was always kind of on his case. So anybody at that time that was even remotely linked to the legal profession, I was all over. <laughs> so when I found out I had a barrister and a QC, no less, I was, yeah, attentive and responsive and keen to impress. Um, and as it happens, things just didn't go as they were because I would have had to move to Manchester at that time. I was kind of going off and doing other things, so didn't follow it through. Um, so yeah, random. But yeah, Cafe Rouge is good because I learned a lot about people. I learned how to build relationships and trust with people very quickly. I had quite a few different job offers from Cafe Rouge, various people that I met. So yeah, it, it, it was good for me and it taught me to work hard you know, I, I wasn't worried about taking breaks. I would do double shifts on Saturday where you'd start at nine o'clock in the morning and finish at midnight. And that's how I managed to stay there for such a long time. So I worked through my A-levels. I went to university and at the time for the first year, I had a girlfriend in Cheltenham, so I would come back. I would come back at the holidays, I'd still work there. So even after my degree, I picked up my first job through Cafe Rouge. But even when I had that first job, I was still working there on a Tuesday night, a Thursday night, and a Saturday and a Sunday. <laughs> they were just working every single day going. And then I went to London. Then I came back from London, picked up another job, and I was still in Café Rouge. Just loved it. You couldn't stay away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe one day you'll return. <laughs> Who knows? One in Cheltenham has got caught up in all of the... Uh, problems so i think cafe rouge and me maybe no more oh shame but um yeah so you you got your law degree but you decided that you didn't want to immediately go into law society and kind of go through the process of becoming a full lawyer so you took a year out right yeah and i think during my second year of university i definitely had some dark times where I had problems with a girlfriend and um, it definitely sent me on a bit of a spiral downward and there was an awful lot of drink at Swansea University so there was a period in my second year where I put myself through the mill because of this ex-girlfriend and because I was out drinking all the time that my approach to the world was probably more about having fun than it was diligently studying so because I didn't do as well in my second year i kind of had accepted that because i was thinking about resitting and my dad was like there's no way and I, and I realized afterwards that my dad said there's no way you're resitting your second year was because he was being made redundant and he was struggling to keep me in university as it was so he was frightened to death that i was going to try and resit and then he'd have to find another lump more money at a time when he was you know trying to keep everybody's heads above water but he didn't tell me he just was very good at helping me to see through it and just to keep plodding on. So I did okay with my exams, but not anywhere near what I was capable of. Um, and then obviously I turned it on in my third year and I did do really well in my third year, but it was not enough 
to give me the level that I wanted. And when all my friends were coming up with first and two ones and I ended up with a two, two, um, it kind of made me question that I wasn't going to get the training contract I wanted. So I needed to try and get some worldly experience before then going on and doing other things. Right. So if I'd have had a bit more confidence, I probably would have just cracked on and gone through and done it. But the universe kind of conspired probably in my favor, who knows, to take a different approach. So again, I was in the almighty Cafe Rouge and I was just waiting tables and four gentlemen came in in suits and they started talking and I'm always going to listen to a conversation just, you know, to see where it might go and see where I can chip in. And they were talking about the legal profession and insurance. And I said, oh, you, you chaps lawyers. And then, yeah, I said, you, you're familiar to me. I think your name is Matt Jenkins. I think you came to my school and did a presentation on what it is to be a lawyer and how to get into the legal profession. And he said, yeah, that's me. And I said, I remember talking to you at the time and you said I could do some work experience with you. So please, can I come and do some work experience? He's like, yeah, that's fine. Just get in touch with the office and we'll sort something out for you. That's cool. I was like, wicked, thanks. Um, and then one of the guys that was with them left and then he came back in the afternoon and he said, I'm not a lawyer, I work in insurance, but I really liked the way that you approached the table and were able to talk to us and to get what you basically wanted out of somebody that you've never met. Uh, I'd like to come and have an interview with me because I've got a job that I'd like to talk to you about. And that chap is now one of my best friends who I've worked with for a while and then have become really close friends with. Um, he offered me a job as a trainee underwriter, insuring legal cases against losing at court, basically. So it was very specialist legal expenses insurance that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, I want to ask you about this, because I think a lot of people listening or watching won't know about this. And, and I found it very interesting. So um, try just explain it to me as, you know, as, a, as I am a, a, an idiot. <laughs> so just, you know, for, for anyone to understand, what, what is this stuff? So if you bring a legal action against somebody that is non-criminal, so let's say you've got a trademark and somebody's infringed your trademark or something, yeah, um, you can bring a legal action against them, but obviously you've got to pay your legal fees because you're not going to get legal aid for something like that because it's not criminal. But it also means that the person that you're taking legal action against has to defend themselves. And they're unlikely to get any legal support, which means you're putting them in a position where they have to pay legal fees to defend themselves against the action that you're bringing. If me bringing this case forward loses my case, or if I pull out, I have to pay my legal fees, but I've probably also got to pay the other side's legal fees along with all of the various court costs and disbursements that are linked to it. So, if I'm trying to sue a private doctor because I felt that they were negligent, they would have to defend themselves. And let's just assume my legal fees could be £100,000, but it's likely their legal fees are going to be in the order of £100,000 plus costs of twenty-five, fifty thousand on top. But it's very unlikely that I've got the cash to fund my own legal case. I might be able to, you'd hope so, if you're, if you're bringing it. Um, and there are funding options available for you to do that, but that's another conversation for another time. But basically, if I bring a legal action, 
and I lose, I have to pay my fees and the other side's fees. So there are insurance policies that you can take out, which means that a underwriter, someone that specializes in insurance for this, will review the case file. The solicitor or the barrister will look at it and give it a chances of success. And it might be a 51% chance of success or a 75% chance of success or, or whatever they deem it to be. And an underwriter will look at this and they'll say, right, this case has got a 51% chance of success. Therefore, we're going to support it. So we will ensure your legal fees of 100,000. If you lose it, obviously we'll ensure the other sides. So that means we'll cover 200,000 pounds worth of legal costs for you. But you might have to pay 25%, 40%, 50% premium. Mm. Um, which means that there's quite a lot of cash floating around. And on certain cases, you know, you need to have very high premiums because I think at the time, something like three or four cases would fail and you would lose on those three and four. So it, it's just it's just standard insurance then. You're just looking at a rating to make sure that you're covering your losses on the ones that you win on. Right, and, and what really interested me about that is that you obviously had a legal background and you said that sometimes you would talk to the lawyers involved in the case and kind of make suggestions about how they could strengthen the case. Yeah, and I, I wonder would that would there be potential for a kind of stepping on toes in in those situations? Yeah, it's an interesting one because ultimately, as the insurer, you're looking to mitigate your risk as much as possible. So you don't want to pay out on a policy necessarily, and in order to protect your position as much as possible, you're going to look to see where you can take out problem areas or mitigate the risk. So a solicitor will put the case file together and it might be, have you got an engineer's report or have you got a third party professional review on this or whatever? So it might be that the solicitor is already doing these things, but you might go in and stipulate in order for us to offer terms, we need this specialist opinion, we need this witness statement, we need blah, blah, blah. So. It's not necessarily that you're going in there and telling that solicitor how to run his case. Um, but I'm sure that certain, there have been many a situation I'm sure that I was involved with where I thought I knew more than the solicitor and I was in there saying, we need to have this, this, this and this in order to offer you any terms. And you know, the solicitor with 30 years experience has got this law graduate that's rolling around thinking he's the biggest deal under the sun. And absolutely not, and he knows nothing. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And um, you then moved on to other stuff, which I will ask you about shortly. But I gather during this time, you were in London, is that right? And and you realized that you didn't like living in London. I'm yeah. curious to ask you, what, what was it about London that you wasn't for you? Um, there were a few things. I think money was one part of it. And secondly, the environment that I was in was quite a cutthroat environment and i worked in a team that wasn't particularly well liked within the company of however many people as a FTSE 250 company that um was yeah the, the team weren't liked so i came in all green in my pinstripe suit walking around the office thinking that again i've arrived because i'm working in this prestigious building in london and i'm working for a team that I think are great, yet everybody else in the organization doesn't particularly like because it was a compliance division. So the compliance division that we were working with were seen as the business prevention office. 
yeah. And if there was any opportunity for anybody to point the finger at us or throw us under the bus, they take it. So there's me thinking that I'm making friends and developing relationships with these people. And actually they just really hate our department and it was tricky. So I did make some good friends in London and in that company, but it was always a bit of a cursed role because it was very hard for me to progress within that organization because everybody just didn't particularly like the company, sorry, the, uh, the division that I was working within. So yeah, it made it tricky. And I wasn't earning enough money to live an enjoyable life in London. I think I was probably earning about 25 grand working in the city. You know, nice. at the time I was living with my girlfriend in Brighton. So I was paying rent in Brighton, paying probably more on my monthly train ticket up to the city. And then, you know, not able to do as much as you'd like to do because there's just not enough cash floating around. Yeah, I think anybody who heard what you were doing would have assumed you would be making much more money than that. I guess when you're junior, that's just not the case. No, no. Second job, walked into a job in insurance in London. Yeah. Right. And as a matter of interest, uh, before moving on from that, uh, did the dislike that other people in the company felt towards your team, did that manifest itself in the pub and kind of like socially or was it just something you felt around the office and kind of in emails and so on? No, there was, there was, there was a heavy drinking culture and they were always out and they were always drinking. And I think the office officially had a no lunchtime drinking policy, but the first Friday I was there, I was taken out by some senior people and I think they drank four pints in an hour. And I felt I just had to go along with it. I couldn't handle one pint. <laughs> I don't think. Um, so I went back to the office hammered. Um, and yeah, no, they were kind of fine. I think that they were more intelligent than that. I think that they were just certain people wanted to keep you close to know what was going on and so whatever. But the younger people and the younger underwriters, the assistant underwriters and stuff, they were cool. They were fine. They, we were just kind of all in it together and it didn't really matter what your department was. You were just going through it. But there were some politics between the seniors within the different cost centers, as they were called. And, and that's where the problem was. So yeah, if they could point the finger at me at work, then they happily would do, but they'd still buy you a pint in the evening, you know? Right, right. Very interesting. And so then you gravitated away from that to eventually St. James Place, which is more like the world of investments. So how, how did that transition occur? Yeah, so I got interested in, in the investment side of it because my boss in the city, his wife was an analyst at a hedge fund. So he started teaching me about the stock market, which I was, didn't have much information on really. And he would explain what was going on. He'd get me to look at stocks. He'd get me to understand trends. So yeah, he gave me a good grounding. And I remember he said that his wife, the hedge fund that she was working for, their minimum investment was a million pounds, which is probably quite small now. Um, but the owner took home one year, 260 million pounds, and used to drive around in a Prius. And I was like, there's more life than this 25 grand salary that I'm on here. There's, there's other things I could be doing. Why am I working for this? 
Um, so then I decided actually I, I wanted to know more about the investment world and I started doing some day trading and investing into funds and that sort of stuff and I loved it and I was just analyzing it and tracking it and keeping a good close on everything so that was all all cool and then a job opportunity came up through a headhunter that was based in Gloucestershire and I think they were trying to find me my job in London originally and then they said oh I know you're in London, but would you consider this? I was like, yeah, St. James's Place. Great, cool, let's go. So, um, yeah, that job opportunity came up. Didn't get it first time around. And I can't remember whether the job changed or somebody left or I didn't want to take it for the money, but there was a reason I didn't get it the first time. And then three or four months passed and then the same team came back and asked if I'd have another conversation. And that happened and then I went to work at St. James in Sarancester. And just to be clear, because obviously that sounds like a bit of a, quite a big shift in terms of the type of work you were doing. Uh, how did you kind of sell yourself uh, as a candidate to make that big jump from one thing to another? Was it the fact that you've been studying it and doing your day trading and stuff or like how did, how did you make that work? No, I'm just really good at selling. And <laughs> um, I had a law degree and that was still very attractive to people. My first job at the university was in the legal world and was very analytical because I was analyzing legal cases. Um, in London, I was dealing with contracts for insurance. So I was analyzing and drafting contracts and stuff like that. And then St. James's Place, I actually went to work in the tax and trusts division. And that was all about looking at tools to mitigate inheritance tax, income tax, capital gains tax. So it meant lots of trust reviews, lots of technical questions about how to invest certain things in certain ways. So it was still relatively legal. I'd say a good 30, 40% of it was still legal in nature. And then obviously every time a budget or change in legislation happens, you've got to understand it, go through the documentation and whatever. But yeah, my, all of my um, trusts and law books from university came in very handy because I was then putting it into practice. So yeah, law degree was pretty essential. I was doing nothing to do with investments really. I was basically looking at the tools and the methods of housing investments rather than making any investments. But St. James's Place don't do any investments actually themselves. They outsource it all anyway. So, you know, should have done my research a bit better. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, you told me a little bit about this, this kind of stuff, which I, I'm really interested in. That The way you phrased it, was uh, about these certain kind of uh, funding vehicles um which for example could get like tv shows funded um so taking the example of of a tv show could you tell the the listener like how this stuff worked yeah so when i was at st james's place i was very fortunate early on to go and get sent to london to work with a company well, no, the company in London were doing seminars on a very specialist type of investment called an enterprise investment scheme and a venture capital trust. And they were at the time probably seen as quite risky and they probably still are seen as quite risky um, investment opportunities where let's say you put a hundred thousand pounds in, you would get very significant tax benefits like 30% income tax relief. So if you put a hundred grand in, you get 30,000 pounds off your income tax bill. So a significant saving. So the government incentivized people to invest into these schemes. So there were a number of companies around the UK that were creating vehicles for people to invest in so that people could get the tax reliefs, but 
there were these investments within them which were seen as more risky more risky um so basically it's, it's in simple terms it's an investment and there are tax benefits for investing into them right they varied so initially all the stuff that we were looking at were renewable based so they were solar based schemes and they were quite effective and they would do exactly what they were supposed to do so people would invest benefit from the tax reliefs after three to four years the money would come back out it would go come back at roughly the same as it went in at or maybe a little bit more but they were so well organized and so run well run that actually the risk of loss was relatively low and over time the government began to tighten up on what you could invest into in order to get the tax relief so the companies had to start getting a little bit more clever with what they were investing in but alongside that um, there were various companies who were investing in TV shows and film. And it was fascinating because basically what was happening is during the financial crisis, 2008, obviously liquidity was a challenge. If you've got a TV show or you're looking to fund a film, some people may go to the bank in order to get borrowing or more traditional outlets for, for funding. And what these guys were doing were creating a pool of money to then invest into TV and film for mainstream usage. So a good example was always Doc Martin. Doc Martin did really well in season one. ITV would then say, that's great. We're gonna run with season two. Off you go, go and produce it and we'll put it on the television for you. But the production company then sat there going, great, we can go on to ITV, but we need to fund this bad boy because ITV aren't going to give us the money. So where are we going to get the money from? And during the financial crisis, money was harder to come by. So these schemes were established. So one of these key companies would then invest into the TV show. They would then have certain levels of ownership over it, but they facilitated it so that this TV show can happen. It will go on television and then they can sell on the rights in the future to whether it's international rights or to, for other usage. But yeah, it meant that the scheme worked because basically the money would go into the investment fund. So as a personal investor, you put your £100,000 in. That £100,000 gets pooled with lots of other investors. So then maybe it's worth £10 million. The fund manager then goes, okay, here you go, TV show one, two, three, four, five. Here's your money. They use that money. They create the TV show. It then goes back onto air. And then they sell the rights off to wherever they make their money. They can then give the money back to the investors with an investment return. Right. And the, I gather the way it worked, it's like you were saying, if you put in a hundred thousand, you'd immediately get kind of get thirty thousand back because that was like a tax income relief. But then you'd also get capital gains relief because you wouldn't if if it made a, if the investment made made a gain over a few years, you wouldn't have any capital gains on that. Yeah, you'd, al you'd also have inheritance tax relief, right? Yeah, so on an enterprise investment scheme at the time, you would get 30% income tax relief on the money you put in. But also if you've sold a share portfolio or a investment property within the last three years, you were able to claim back that capital gains tax. So if you paid whatever it was, I'm out of date now, 20 or 28% in capital gains tax, you could claim that back as well, even though you've already paid the tax. And then because this investment was into the EIS was 
qualifying for inheritance tax because it was a business asset. Uh, after two years, it would be free of inheritance tax as well. So if you were able to get all of the tax reliefs, you'd get 30% income tax relief, 28% capital gains tax, and 40% inheritance tax relief. So you put it all together and yeah, the benefits are significant. And there was a loss relief. So theoretically, as you said, if if the thing goes pop and it just completely loses all the money, the invest like the overall investment, uh, you could then claim back like half of what you lost as well. Yeah. Right? So I'm I'm sketchy now on whether that was the IS or VCT, but essentially, yeah, if you put thirty thousand pounds in, you had the income tax relief. So let's say you put in a hundred grand, you've benefited from seventy thousand. If the whole fund collapsed and you lost all of your money, you'd be able to reclaim fifty percent of the the. the was it? You'd be able, you'd be able, anyway, you'd be able to claim fifty percent of the income tax. No, fifty percent of the loss. I think it's fifty percent of the loss. So you get, I think, another thirty-five thousand based on the seventy thousand. But that's assuming that you paid that amount in income tax. So you can't claim tax that you haven't paid. So you right. can't claim more in tax than you've paid. So yeah, if you put a hundred grand in, seventy thousand uh, pounds is what you're exposed to because you've had a 30,000 income tax relief. If it all goes underwater, then you'd be able to get another 35,000 back in income tax relief. So your total exposure risk is 35,000 on 100,000. Right. This, this is really interesting to me on the level of uh, kind of political beliefs and stuff because part like I, I generally would be a quite kind of lefty leaning person. And when I hear this, part of me goes, this sounds like it's it's a big scheme to help rich people avoid paying tax. So part of me goes, that doesn't sound good for society as a whole. But another part of me can see that um, in a time, like you say, where money wasn't plentiful that much around the place, this was probably quite a smart way of helping you know, startups or like you're saying, renewable companies and stuff like that get a bit of funding. So what are your thoughts on that? You know? Yeah. So the the SME market, small medium enterprise market is basically the lifeblood of the UK economy. So the government recognized that if you're looking to generate growth and taxes, if you can have smaller companies being created where they're employing people, Therefore, you've got national insurance and income tax. You're able to pay corporation tax. You're rolling through on VAT. You're able to generate quite a lot in income. So by creating money or its incentives for people to invest into these smaller UK enterprises, it made more sense for the government because they would make more money over the long term of this company growing, developing, employing more people, paying more in tax. And at one stage, and I haven't got a source for this at the moment because I, I left finance a while ago. So I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm at the edges of my knowledge now. And it was something like they would get 12 times back in tax what they had returned in tax reliefs. Right. Um, that, that's, that, you know, 12 times investment return on giving tax reliefs is, is quite significant because, you know, these investment companies are creating these structures where they're employing people to do it and they're still paying tax 
you're then funding opportunities for new companies to grow. And that's coming from private investors. So that money is developing that way. And as they're growing, everybody's paying more tax. And it just helps with the cycle of life, whether it's investment, merger and acquisition, employee growth, pension contributions. And obviously the government are always keen to make sure people are paying into pensions. So yeah, the, uh, the schemes were there and calculated so that yes, the wealthy investors and people that can expose themselves to the risk of these investments going bad did benefit really well from um, future returns. Yeah, but you make a, a very good argument in its favor. And, you know, uh, like I said, a, a, a kind of a feeble um, lefty kind of going, I don't like the sound of that doesn't really stand up, at least right now. Like it, it sounds like it was actually quite a smart move. Yeah. Um, for the economy as a whole, in fairness. So at this point, you're w w was this in Cheltenham? Sorry, I'm I mixed. This is this was at Sir in Sirencester, um, for some right. place. So I was there for about four years, from 2007 to 2011, give or take. Right, and then so I'm curious now to hear about the transition to photography. Um, I gather it kind of first began that you were taking pictures on nights out um so tell us about that yeah um i used to love going out um i think university meant that i liked going out a lot and i actually don't drink hardly anything anymore i, th I think i've had so many hangovers that i got to the point that i don't want the hangovers anymore but yeah when i left university i was still in the university mindset of just going out and having fun with friends quite a lot and i would be out most nights. And then I can't remember what happened, but I think I met some people that were photographers and they were doing nightclub photography. And I loved seeing the nightclub photography. And I met a guy who, oh, I know, I remember how all this started. There was a really cool bar and uh, club in Cheltenham called the Fez Club and boom. And it used to be the place to go on a Saturday night. It was just epic. And it closed down and everybody was like, why, what's going on? And it closed down because all the staff were giving away too much drink <laughs> to their friends. And I remember at one stage, I think they were like 16,000 pounds down on a, on a month because so much alcohol had been handed out by their students to their friends on various nights out. But anyway, so the club went down and um, there was a lot of um, speculation about what would happen in this club. And this guy who was a student showed lots of interest and was doing various things to get people talking about it. He and I developed a relationship and then we set something up randomly called Nocturnal Cheltenham, which was a nightlife guide. So we listed all the bars and clubs. We got all the flyers, we uploaded them all. And then we started going out to the bars and the clubs, photographing the revelers um, on their night out. And then we would obviously upload that to the website, but we would also upload it to Facebook with um, branded stuff all over it. And it became really popular. Um, all the clubs were happy to pay some money for us to post um, their flyers on the website and draw attention to it and use the Facebook group. And it got really popular. So then I was in a position where I was having to go out to all the nightclubs and photographing people in various states um, because it just drew attention and traffic and everybody was tagging their friends and they wanted to see themselves on, 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 the, on the photography from the night out. And people told me I was good. And I was like, no, I'm not good. I don't know what I'm doing, but okay, let's go with the flow. But there were some really good photographers out there. So I was keen to make sure that I could, you know, hold my own against these really good photographers. 
Um, so that's where it started. And then a friend of mine said, oh, I'm getting married. Would you photograph my wedding? And I was going as a guest, but I had no idea the pressure that a wedding photographer might be under photographing someone's <laughs> wedding with a little compact camera that they gave me for the day. Um, and again, someone said, these photos are great. You know, these, these are good. So I have had no appreciation of what I was doing or how good or bad anything was, but people were supportive of, of me shooting stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of the timing with the nightclub stuff. Was that in that kind of period of time before everybody had a camera in their phone? Because it's that's I feel like there wouldn't be as much need for proper photographers in clubs in the last few years because everyone's taking pictures of themselves nonstop. Yes, yeah, so now you're just undervaluing the skills of a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it would have been. There wouldn't have been as much. Um, there would have been bits, but nowhere near the level that we were doing it. Because, yeah, it was 2011, 12, I guess, something around then. So, yeah, a while ago. Phones definitely weren't as, as good as they are now. Yeah. Um, and people are just so obsessed with it now, aren't they? Like, it's, yeah. it's um, yeah. the average person's ability to take pictures of themselves has grown exponentially. But even that, if you were in a club now, although obviously there are none currently, um, people would still want the professional photographer to photograph them and they would still pose and they would still pull their friends in and they grab you as you were walking through the dance floor because people still want those photographs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you had a friend, you had a... And just to be clear, you were doing this stuff as you were doing the other jobs. Yeah, yes. at one stage I was working um, Monday to Friday as a, whatever I was doing at the time, whether it was at um, doing the underwriting stuff or St. James's Place. I was working in Cafe Rouge on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night. Um, I would work in a nightclub on a Friday night. I would work a double shift in Cafe Rouge on a Saturday, and then I'd go and work in the nightclub on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I had no, um, no off. I was just constantly happy to work. I just wanted to earn money. Any opportunity for me, to me for earn money, I'd take it. And, you know, I'd earn really good money in tips at um, Cafe Rouge. I had an okay salary in my job. And then I just enjoyed working in the nightclub because in my mind, I was better off driving to work, having a night in a club, seeing my friends, and then driving them all home than I was going out drinking at that point. So, yeah, I was, I was very motivated by building cash and getting cash in. And I knew that I wanted to buy a house. So, and I think other nights, if I wasn't working, I was babysitting for friends and kind of work went round. And I would go with a girlfriend and I would turn up at their house with my girlfriend. I would then drive them to wherever they wanted to go, drop them off, go back, probably fall asleep on the sofa, wait for my friends to ring, uh, go and pick them up and bring them back. So I was taxi service. <laughs> babysitter it was great it, everyone loved it I, I had a reputation it was like yeah we want Spencer to babysit because he drops us off <laughs> doesn't matter what time it is so we'll just come this is really making me think you know that there are certain people who have it's almost in their blood like there's a kind of an entrepreneurial spirit or something or there's a um, I don't want to say wheel, wheeler dealers almost almost like pejorative but you know there's a um, a money-making kind of spirit and a, and a drive that's just part of you. And it, it sounds like that's the case. Yeah, yeah. If there's an opportunity, it's changed over the years, but definitely in the earlier part of my life, if there was an opportunity to make money, I would do it. 
and and it wasn't at all costs you know I, had <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah you know I, I wasn't doing big deals you know I was working for minimum wage in a nightclub I was working for minimum wage in Cafe Rouge but then I was making good money in tips but I still had you know be successful in my day job as well um, and then now in the world that I'm in now I've changed my mindset slightly so I'm still very entrepreneurial and still very driven by creative but I know that the money will come I'm not as driven just by the financial reward now because actually the creative reward is greater and more powerful and it kind of goes hand in hand with financial reward anyway. Mm. So that um, brings us on nicely to, to how this kind of really got going. You had a friend who was a makeup artist who um, introduced you to another friend. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so I was working in St. James's Place and when I was doing the nightclub photography, I spent a lot of money on my first professional camera and it was what all the other good photographers were using. So I was like, I've got to have this camera. I've just got to... So I spent, I don't know what it was, three and a half thousand pounds on a camera um, as a non-professional and just felt that's what I had to have. So the makeup artist, her boyfriend ran a nightclub. So she knew that I was into photography and she knew that I wanted to do more fashion work just because I was fascinated by it and I enjoyed it. And she said, well, I'm doing a shoot with a guy who might be interested in you coming along. So I was like, cool, great. Yeah, if you can ask him, that'd be brilliant. So she reached out to him and he was like, yeah, cool. If he wants to do a shoot, come along. He can shoot some behind the scenes photography and stuff. And, um, and on we went. And I didn't really realize that this guy was a big time stylist. So he'd spent time all over the world and had worked with some of the biggest names and the biggest brands going. And he sadly had had some troubles when he was in Los Angeles and had some drug addiction issues that he was fighting. So he moved back to Cheltenham at the age of like 38, I think it was maybe 39 to, to move in with his mum for a little bit to try and sort himself out and to, to get back to the creative genius that he was. And this guy was incredible. You know, he could walk into any room, make everybody feel loved, make every single person there feel like they've had all of his time. And he was just an absolute legend. And he was basically starting to build up his portfolio again. Because I think he'd like fallen out with some people in LA and he'd lost his agents and there was loads of work that he couldn't get hold of because relationships had gone down or whatever and um, so he was building his book up again so he was just doing some local fashion shoots with local magazines and that's what he was doing and we were shooting at Sudley Castle in um, in Gloucestershire and um, that was the first shoot that my friend was working on and um, sorry I've just got someone in the mail. no worries all good so the first shoot by me um, so the first shoot that we that he was doing was at Sudley Castle in Cheltenham and I went along it was all set and I was just doing general behind the scenes shots so you know I was photographing the clothes on the rail the makeup artist doing things and then he said don't worry if you want to shoot the model shoot the model so I was like wicked cool great okay and he gave me time so 
you know, while the professional photographer was in there doing his thing, I just let him do that or I was shooting around or getting shots of him shooting the model or whatever. And then he let me have time with the model at the end. And I was like, okay, great, cool, good. Um, and like through the day, he was just giving me some pointers and some thoughts and he really took his time just to talk to me and help me. And at the end of the day, he looked at my photographs and compared them to the professional photographer who was there. And he said, your photos are better than the professional photographer that I've had in on the shoot. And I was like, no, <laughs> whatever. And, and he and I just started talking and he started explaining why they were good and what I'd captured and what he liked about them. And from there, we just started building this relationship where he started teaching me about teams that you put on a shoot, whether it's makeup, styling, set design, what he's looking for in a model, in a location, and just started educating me. And he would, he would go through, you know, big books of Tom Ford or David LaChapelle, and he'd explain what's good and bad. And he really inspired me. And it was, I felt like a, a giddy schoolboy because I've got this great guy who has proven his worth time over he was giving me time and made me feel as if I had potential and nobody else had ever made me feel like that around photography. And, um, he just gave me lots of confidence and made me feel like I could maybe do something. And then a few weeks later, he said, look, I've got a magazine that want to shoot with me and I want you to shoot it. And I'm like, I can't do that. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, up until this point, I'd pretty much been on automatic just, pointing and shooting. I was just lucky with framing and composition. <laughs> and, and at the same time, I just developed a relationship with a, another photographer locally who became my business partner and mentor. And he and I were together at the right time for us to work on this shoot together. And we were all set to go. I think we were shooting on something like the 6th of January and Stuart um, had lined everything up it was all good. It was all good to go. We knew where we were shooting, models, locations, everything was sorted. And I think it was the 28th of December, he actually committed suicide. And um, I remember I was at St. James's Place and I think one of my mum's friends rang me who knew him. And she said, have you heard about Stuart? And I went through that standard thing, complete denial. I was like, no, 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 no. This has got to be a mistake. So I ring around my friends and the reality was pretty quickly that he had committed suicide. And um, I remember just going to see my boss and saying, what happened, I had to go. So I, I left work and I went to see my girlfriend and she was his personal trainer. So she'd spent a lot of time with him as well. And um, I remember the, speaking to the magazine like a couple of days later, nobody could believe what was going on. Everyone was just truly gutted and couldn't believe it. Um, and they said that we're running a, a tribute in the magazine to him. I know you've got, we've got the pages reserved for the fashion shoot. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to shoot it. I want to, I want to do it. Everything is set up. Everything is good to go. Let's do it. And they were like, cool. Okay. So I think a friend of his kind of stepped in as a stylist to help bring it together. Uh, we shot it. I think we started at like four at night in the afternoon and finished at two in the morning. We had, an idea of what we were trying to do, but you know, we hadn't really directed models much before. Got our way through it and the magazine saw the images, they loved them and they said, we're gonna run these. And if you want to keep these pages going forwards, we'll reserve them for you. You just go and shoot what you wanna shoot and submit them to us and, and the pages are yours.
amazing story and obviously terribly sad but is Stuart Weir was his full name right yeah 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 absolutely um and and just um just on Stuart you know did uh, you often hear people kind of didn't realize at all that was going on with somebody was that did that obviously you'd mentioned he had his struggles with drugs and so on but did, did it kind of seem like he was recovering from that and yeah, it, it did. I, it, it kind of felt like he'd had a new lease of life and that he was excited and that things were going well. Um, there were, he knew lots of people in Cheltenham and I think he was surrounded by people that were living in the old ways. And I understand there's a lot of people around him that were aware of how things were and how difficult they were. So a lot of his old school friends were very close to him and were watching out for him and were doing all the things that you'd expect to try and make sure somebody doesn't do something like that. Um, and I think that there was a really big party on one of the nights and most of the people were at that party. And um, I think it was, I think that everybody was kind of distracted with what was going on that night and he was able to slip off and, and do it. So yeah, it was um, really unfortunate. Mm. really unfortunate yeah um but obviously he had a, a hugely positive impact on your life so oh, you know in yeah. terms of your story he was a great um person to have met and to have influenced you like that yeah i tell people now that without Stuart weir and without his belief in me i wouldn't be here today doing what i'm doing there is no way if he hadn't have seen something in me and if he hadn't have inspired me and educated me there's no way i'd be here because it's great when your family and your friends say oh these are great but unless your mum is a famous stylist or you know magazine editor who understands things you're probably not likely to take it on board too much because do they really know what makes a good photograph or not so for somebody who didn't know me to have so much belief in me was incredible. And when he died, I, uh, something just changed in me. And I, and I thought, you know what, if I, don't, if I don't go for this now, if I don't try and see this through, if I don't try and become a photographer, then what's the point? And if it doesn't work, fine. I'll go back to finance and I'll get a job and I'll, and I'll do that. But I'm going to try. I'm going to give it a go. So I quit my job at St. James's Place. I went to work in Investec. It allowed me to be in Cheltenham. I was able to have meetings and see people and do things after work. So I was able to start it rolling. I think I still thought I might stay in finance at that point, but Investec was a great opportunity, but I, I proved it wasn't right for me. So it allowed me to start building up again. Every day holiday I took, I would use to do photography. So weekends, evenings, holiday days, all photography related. And then I, after a year, I quit and I went to consult for a, another financial advisor on three days a week. And what I would do is I would use every spare moment I had to do photography and every spare pound I could have, I would save. The finance income I would use to live on so mortgage, blah, blah, blah. That meant I could survive and I would save all this money or I would buy equipment and I did it with Phil, who's my business partner. So we invested um, all of the money 
we could into into the business and eventually it got to the point where I was able to reduce and reduce and reduce my finance and build up the photography and then it got to the point where I was living off of the photography income and then I was just saving the investment and finance income and that just slowly petered down until it didn't matter anymore because all of my life was over here in photography that's that's incredible i mean i've spoken now to a bunch of people who've um changed careers and i have not heard any story of such an orderly you know exit <laughs> it's like so smoothly executed um how you did that that's really impressive i had a baby in that time there were there was, there was like a number of things that happened during my transition and they all happened at the same time and it was brutal i remember one of them was obviously I was having my daughter, so that's great, but yeah. financial pressure. And um, we were doing a renovation on the house that was being done by a bunch of rogues who I think went three months over on the project plus X number of pounds. And I think they were supposed to have finished six weeks before our daughter came. My wife was two weeks late. And then it was a number of weeks after the baby was here. So we had to go and live at my wife now, uh, her mum and in Stratford so we couldn't even go into our own home with our newborn baby and Phil my business partner on the photography side um, was coming under pressure because of stuff that was going on with his wife's business so he needed to get involved in the wife's business which meant he had to step away from photography and he's been my mentor and was the technical photographer he was fantastic I was great at sales but he's the guy that taught me everything I know about photography and because I was leaving finance and I went to consult for somebody else one of the guys I was consulting for decided that he wasn't going to pay me my last bill of five grand or whatever it was, refused to pay me just unscrupulously. Um, and I had to take him to court and I had to use an after the event insurance premium insurance <laughs> I used, um, against him and I, and I won. So it ended up costing him double what he should have paid me. And I had everything in writing, I had everything boxed off. I remember giving it to the solicitor. He's like, this is gonna be a slam dunk case. This is gonna be the easiest case I've ever done um, because this guy's in financial services and um, based on the evidence I've got, this is a slam dunk. So yeah, I had these four things all going on at the same time as I was trying to exit financial services to on the photography. So um, it was, it, I remember how stressful it was at that point. And it, yeah, it was, it was bad. And how many years ago was that now? Well, we set the business up in 2011, which is when Phil and I were doing stuff properly. Um, and I would say that I've been a full-time photographer for three and a half years, maybe four years. Right, so, so I was not, doing, not too long. No, not long ago. But basically, I had staff and clients while I was still doing financial services. Right. <laughs> so I was keeping the income trickling in from financial services while running a business. Um, and if I'm honest to myself, I should have just dropped the financial services stuff sooner because as soon as I fully committed to the photography, it exploded. While I was still juggling both, it was very difficult to commit. And my brain, I'm lucky that I'm creative and logical that my brain was having to constantly switch between writing an investment report or whatever it was to doing something cool and creative. Um, and I really, really began to despise anything report-based, analytical, sitting in an office, my phone going, emails coming in, opportunities on the creative side. And I was just, you know, earning 
whenever I was earning a day to make sure I had some money coming in, but it, it drove me mad. I, I really hated being in an office and couldn't bear doing the financial services work by the end. I should have gotten out sooner, and, but I was just trying to mitigate my risk. <laughs> right. That's very interesting that, you know, that your perspective on it changed um, as you did it. And just so the, the listener viewer is clear, what kind of age were you at that point? If you don't mind sharing what? 28. 28. I was at the point where I was transitioning over to photography properly and I'm 39 now. So yeah, I'm about 11 years in to doing photography, but yeah, not that long full time. And uh, I want to hear about, you know, lots of your photography projects. But just before we get to that, I was curious when you said how your photography had been better than the professional photographer uh, on the day on that first shoot and then learning the lessons by looking at, you know, the Tom Ford shoots and everything. Could you share with us, like, what is it that separates a, a good amateur photographer from a professional photographer, from, from, a, from a top level photographer? photographer what what are what is that extra little bit that makes it i'll probably raise all sorts of complaints over this but, <laughs> um there's, there's two elements to it one i think you're born a photographer and you're born with that creative eye in the same way that i believe that you're born able to sing or not but the thing that makes the difference at the level we're at is consistency. So we will deliver every single day. Um, but the most important thing is, is the preparation and the work that goes in to making shoots happen. So yeah, anybody can go out and shoot some stuff, but if you're shooting a single day's campaign and it's 50 grand, 100 grand, two day shoot, 200,000 pounds, you know, it's, it's big money. And if you, you mess it up as the photographer or the filmmaker, it's all on you. If the models are wrong, if the stylist gets something wrong, if the lighting's not right, it doesn't matter. It comes back to you as the photographer or filmmaker, regardless of whoever else is on it. You, you, you shoulder pretty much everything in my view. So you have to be so fantastically well prepared. I think the success of the business now isn't down to me. It's down to my team who cocoon me <laughs> and bubble wrap everything around me because there are things that go on that I don't always know about that they've had to firefight on or to uh, address or sort or resolve before it comes to me so yeah it's, it's the hard work that's done in production and pre-production that makes the difference um, and then obviously with that there's a little bit of twinkly magic on coming up with creative ideas and my business partner now Dale who I was at school with his ideas and the things that he comes up with are mind blowing. And there are things that he's done over the years or ideas that he's had over the years that I've been like, no, this isn't cool. This isn't good. We shouldn't do this, but I've supported him as a business partner. So I, I don't believe in it just being my way or no way. It's like, okay, well, let's give it a go. And there are so many things that we've been very successful and our perception has been changed because of, ideas that he's had and that we've initiated off the back of it and now you know he will pitch ideas into a client and i'm just there like wow yeah that's amazing that's great <laughs> let's go with it and um, so yeah there's 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 the creative vision and there's the logical traditional 
preparation, the military precision, because these shoots are, are, are pretty big um, that we get involved with now. And if you get it wrong, you're not seeing that client again. Mm. I want our clients to come back. Yeah. And could you give us an example of an idea that your business partner has pitched and at first you were like, you're off your rocker, but turned out to be great? Alan Carr, dead in a box. Okay. <laughs> and, he, and he just said that and he said that. So our client was shouting at festivals and they were looking at ideas and he just looked at them and then deadpan, Alan Carr, dead in a box. And it was something to do with he, Alan Carr was coming to the festival and he wanted to go around various places where people would pull out a, I can't, I can't even remember what it was. I can't, I, I'm sorry. I can't remember the detail. I'd have to get it from Dale. But he just pitched this deadpan. Then he explained it. And they're like, that is the best idea I've ever heard. And I was like, how are you going to get Alan Carr <laughs> to agree to being dead in a box for this video? But anyway, it, it, didn't, it didn't happen because of whatever. But yeah, he, he just comes out with these things. Um, we've recently pitched... I think 15 ideas to a client. So we got all of our team involved. Normally with clients, um, if they're an existing client and we know them and we trust them, then we will happily pitch ideas to them. Quite often you might get new clients that want you to pitch a load of ideas to them, but you're in a tender process and there's seven or eight or five or 10 or however many other agencies also trying to get the work. So we don't give ideas away in that situation because there's nothing worse than us coming up with a fantastic idea and they get somebody that's half the price to go and deliver it for you so we don't let them we always, we'll, we might charge them a fee for giving them some idea generation but um, it's rare um, so Dale pitched 15 ideas to this client ranging from relatively mild to absolutely ludicrous and they loved all 15 ideas and then they went to America and they've narrowed it down to 8 ideas so the stuff that Dale comes out with is just superb. Amazing. So yeah, let's hear about some of these like some of these highlights along the way. Um like for example, the being on top of the mountain shooting the you shot the number one snowboarder in the world at the time. Where was the mountain and how how did you make that happen? So um as it happens, and this I don't I don't know whether there's an element of karma or not in here, the guy that didn't pay me um, and had to pay me once we started the legal action. We used to have a fantastic relationship and he introduced me to a guy who was a distressed debt investor. So he would identify companies that were under pressure. He would buy them as they were kind of almost going into administration. He'd buy them cheap, flip them, improve them, sell them. And one of the companies he invested into was a company called Rurock that make snowboarding helmets and they've got the mouth guard and, and stuff. And they were quite a small company, but he introduced me, this guy, to this, this company and we started doing photography for them. And over the years, they've grown hugely and they're now doing motorbike helmets and all sorts of different things. And they're an incredibly successful company. But we'd worked with them from nothing with tiny, tiny budgets and they grew and we grew. And I think one of the first major athletes they sponsored was a guy called Max Perot, who at the time was the number one snowboarder. And they were designing his own special goggles. So they sent us out to Sasfe in Switzerland. And I think we must've done about five or six shoots for them by this point, dotted around Austria, Switzerland, France, and maybe somewhere else. Um, Aspen, I think we went to as well. Um, but yeah, I, I just remember being sat there 
with this incredible athlete hunkered down at the end of a rail as he was coming towards me. <laughs> um, and I had to wait for him to recycle. And I was like, this is so cool. This is just incredible. The sun was shining. I didn't really ski very well. <laughs> and I had this guy doing everything I was asking him to do. And I remember one of the most frightening experiences of my life was I was on the half pipe and um, I was kind of poking my head out over the, over the edge to get this shot because I wanted him to come over the top of me. And I was watching him come down and he went up and he went, oh shit. <laughs> and then I heard my client behind me go, <laughs> as he came down and he missed my neck about that much and it definitely changed my view uh, on where I should position my head when <laughs> doing this stuff and I said to him I said you really worried me when you went up and you said oh shit he says oh no I wasn't going to hit you and it was I didn't get my landing quite right so I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do the jump I wanted and I was like that's <laughs> great yes well I'm underneath you <laughs> and then my client behind me having a <laughs> panic attack so you think I'm going to get decapitated on a mountain but um yeah, it was it was an incredible trip, and I really remember that one because um, I think we were shooting in the off season because it's on a glacier, um, so there weren't many other people about. And we turned up, and the client had put us in a suite, and I was like, "Wow, this is great!" And I had a, a member of staff with me, um, and then I realised that they'd put us in the same room. So me and a guy is probably ten years my junior. And I was sharing this room I and mean, it was a suite and it was amazing. So we walked in and then I realized that there was only one big double bed. And then I flipped around the other side and it was an open plan bathroom toilet extravaganza. So I had to share this beautiful suite with one of my team members and we had to share a bed and a bathroom. <laughs> and I said to the client, I said, I'm really grateful for the suite. Thank you so much. And they said, well, look, this is our first at proper athlete. And we didn't, think we, were, we didn't want him to think that we were cheapskates by putting you guys in a different hotel. So we put you all in suites, but we just made you share a room. <laughs> and uh, what about your um, shoot with Hillary Clinton? Tell us about that. Yeah, that was, that was cool um, and a, a very unique opportunity, really. It wasn't long after everything happened where she lost to Trump. So, yeah, the, the timing of that one was, was relevant for everybody. Um, the thing I, I always remember about that is Chantler Festivals were the client for that one. So she was over in the UK talking about her new book and Chantler Festivals. Um, they've got a huge literature festival every year, and she was the headline for that, really but they didn't want it to leak too soon. And it was quite a late booking. So they codenamed her Brenda. So we we're having all these calls and all these conversations and all these meetings talking about Brenda. Um, and only later did, did lots of people find out that Brenda was actually uh, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Hillary Clinton was coming to Cheltenham to talk about her new book. And obviously it was all based around losing to Trump. And she was set to come to the Cheltenham race course she was doing a tour of the UK with various people and we were doing the live stream of the event. So we were live streaming for Cheltenham festivals and the times and Sunday times. And for the festivals, I always set up a portrait studio. So I would set up backstage to shoot her and I've shot people like Damien Lewis and Judy Dench and all sorts of, 
famous face and name, whether they're an author or they're a media star or whatever. So it's great that I get exposure to all these people. So it's kind of just accepted that Spencer will turn up and we'll get a great portrait of any famous person that comes to the festivals now. Um, so there was a lot of build up to this one. We had to go through lots of security. So we knew that Secret Service were keeping an eye on us in the lead up to it. And I remember actually um, when people knew that she was coming, people were saying, are you going to get the chance to shoot Hillary Clinton? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to shoot Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was lots of banter around that because I've also shot Sir David Attenborough, <laughs> which um, might do that. equally as much trouble. Um, so yeah, so she was coming to Cheltenham. We were set up at least an hour and a half before she was meant to arrive so that we knew that everything was, was good to go. And we started getting news that she was running late and she was an hour and a half late. So I'd been waiting for Hillary Clinton for three hours. I'd set up in two areas. So I'd set up at one end of the room against the, the branding stuff. So the Cheltenham Festivals, and I think it was the University of Gloucestershire who were the headline sponsor so that they could get their photographs of their students and various people with her in front of that branding. And at the other end of the room, I'd set up my portrait studio with backdrop and loads of lights and tether table so that you could see the images straight away and things. And I spent a lot of time making sure that everything was perfect. And now that she was running late, obviously there was no time to do anything. So her assistant came over and said, look, you're probably not going to get a chance to have your portrait. Can you just take your photograph of her against the branded wall? And I was like, no, there is no way. I haven't set up all of this to take her photograph against that wall when my lighting is just flat and functional. I've got something beautiful set up over here. So I wanted to make sure that it was epic. So they were like, fine. They begrudgingly carried on because I said, I promise you I will do it in less than a minute. I only need a minute. So anyway, she came in and she was great and just, she was lovely and she was charming and she had so much banter. She was great and she gave everybody plenty of time. She posed for the photographs. She did everything that she needed to do and she made everybody feel great. Um, and the last photograph that I needed to get was with um, a chap called Ian George, who's the head of Cheltenham Festivals. And um, just off to the side, they had their Cheltenham Festivals banner. And there was this massive University of Gloucestershire banner. And then um, Ian was like, oh, we just need to pull this branding in, which I probably should have gone and got and pulled across. But no, there's Hillary Clinton dragging over this <laughs> so that she can stand in front of it and have a photograph taken with Ian. Um, so there was a lot of banter about that. We got that, we shot it. And then she got directed towards me straight into my little portrait studio. I asked her to put her toes against, against the little black line that I put on the floor so that she was facing the set the right way. And I literally took one, two, three frames, checked it, off she went. She gave me a little clap, thanked me, and then she went on stage and did her, her, her presentation. Um, but I remember there was a press den at the front and the photographers were allowed two minutes of photography with her on stage. And I've always been the really fortunate one because I'm the festival's photographer. I basically just get free reign of the place. I've already met all the Secret Service guys. They all know who I am. And I'm allowed to stay in for the whole time. So I wandered around. The photographer, there was one photographer there who was a famous press photographer. And he always is a little bit funny with me because I get all access. And he right. doesn't, he's a bit more limited on what he can do. Um, and he's asked me if I got my portrait. And I was like, yep, yeah, I got it. And uh, he said, oh, I hope it was in focus. And just looked at me deadpan. And I'm thinking, hmm, is it? <laughs> is it in focus? <laughs> so um, 
I took a few shots, ran around to my assistant who was at the back because he was sending the photos straight off to the Times. And um, he's like, yeah, no, they're cool. What, what are you worried about? I'm like, yeah, no, it's fine. Um, and then I went back in and got some more photographs. And um, yeah, those, those photographs ended up on the front page of the Times the next day, which was, um, was fantastic because I had people ringing me and messaging me saying, congratulations on, the, on your front cover. And I'm like, what? Nice. Yeah. Hillary Clinton. I, I had no, I had no idea. I knew that they were going to use them, but I didn't realize it was going to be front page of the Times. So yeah, that was um, that was that was definitely a career highlight, and, and not one that I'd expected. And having photographed so many famous people now, there are certain names that I drop in, like J.K. Rowling or Boris Becker or whatever. Hillary Clinton and Sir David Attenborough are the two that just stop everybody, and they, they always want to know what she was like and. Um, and how she was and she was fantastic i remember listening to uh werner herzog the filmmaker recently and he talks about how you just have to you just have to go for it sometimes and like he he shot a film in china without a permit wow. uh, and <laughs> you know there was like shooting in a market a, a busy market with like policemen and stuff around and he's like you just have to go for it yeah but uh, but and um it's true because sometimes you can plan everything and we did a shoot last week um, that we were working on, a, on, a, on a, with a 12K camera for Lotus. And we were shooting at a place called Millbrook, which is phenomenal. And it's a really expensive fee to use it for the day, but it's a 700 acre estate and it's got all sorts of different roads. It's got bank corners, it's got winding um, like mountain roads, everything. And we were all set to do this shoot and we were so excited about every element of it. And if it could have gone wrong, it went wrong that night we planned for everything and everything went wrong and it nearly broke us i think it was i was two o'clock in the morning i was stood on the side of this road where we'd set up a fake traffic light and i was just i went into the depths of despair thinking that we'd ruined our opportunity and that everything had gone wrong and that nobody would ever take us seriously and we had everyone day one of four um, and i think i got back to cheltenham at 5 a.m in the morning and we had to be back out for two the next day so a few hours sleep and then back to it and then everything got better and everything worked and everything went to clockwork for the next three nights but yeah there was there, there are some low points in this job mm. and it's interesting that you still kind of could doubt yourself sometimes like you've come so far you're in these lovely offices you're obviously doing really well but uh i guess it's possible for anyone to doubt themselves yeah no i i, I, don't, I don't think we're doing as well as we could be um, i always worry that we're going to lose something that has an impact or, you know, we're looking at employing new staff at the moment. And it always, um, always concerns me because it's taking on another cost and another responsibility. And I'm always really clear that um, Dale and I don't get paid unless we've paid the staff. They always get paid first. Um, and yeah, we, we're doing okay. And we've got some cool projects and we do some good things, but I always worry about the money. I always want to make sure that everything's good and we can afford to do all the things we need to do. And I don't mind personally sacrificing, but I, I, I always also have always recognized that whenever we've taken the next step and we've taken on new staff, it's always worked out, but it still worries me every time we build a new studio or take on new staff or buy a very specialist piece of equipment where we're investing a lot of money. It, I, I always think it's going to go wrong. So how do we try and avoid that? Mm. Well, from everything you've told me, you're such a grafter, you know, 
it's hard to see that happening like you you, you apply yourself so much i'm sure it'll work it'll work itself out any Thanks. challenges you face <laughs> hope so and out of curiosity i'm thinking back to your parents advice when you were a kid and you know you saw those pictures in national geographic and they were like no be be a lawyer be a doctor and all that and and the the road that you went down um which sounds like even when you were doing the stuff that wasn't photography it was all a very interesting journey and obviously set you up financially in some ways and so on so I, i'm wondering do you feel that the road you've been on has been right for you would would you change anything about it no probably not because the only reason this business it's not the only reason but the primary reason this business is as a success is because of the commercial world that i've been exposed to so that i run this in a particular way but also the people i've met along the way have all helped to introduce me to something or to somebody or we've done loads of work with st james's place because i've had exposure to st james's place and know people there so I got St. James's Place as a client legitimately through somebody that was a new introduction to me. But once they realized that I understood the business and then other people wanted to use us because we already worked with SJP, it made things easier. So if I'd have started to be a photographer from the age of 16, okay, I might have been a great photographer and I might be doing what I'm doing now, but I feel that this business is in a better position and has grown to what it is now because of my commercial background, especially understanding finances and understanding risk and looking at how to mitigate risk. So you don't know what you don't know, but I'd like to think that this has all happened at the right time in the right way. And if I hadn't met Stuart Weir, maybe I never would have become a photographer, but equally, you don't know who else I might have met on a different path um, that might have inspired me just as well. So it's impossible to say definitively, but I'd like to think that, yeah, my legal background, my finance background and my analytical analysis of stuff, even Cafe Rouge, and if I hadn't had Cafe Rouge, then I might not have been able to build relationships with people in the way that I have. So, yeah, I think it all kind of links into to where we are now. Hmm. Oh, it's a great story as far as I'm concerned and it sounds like you've lived a very rich and interesting life um, yeah I see I don't I just don't see it um, I, I, don't, I, I don't see the success I don't um, I, I still feel like I'm failing at stuff I don't see I, I, I just I just don't see it I, I think we've got so far to go and, I, and I'm always looking ahead and, and I, don't, I haven't fallen fully into the trap of not appreciating what I've got because I am very grateful to what we've got. And every so often when I'm walking around this building, especially I think, yeah, this is cool. This is, this is good. But it's a little, little occasional nod as opposed to going, yeah, this, yeah we, we've made it. There's, there's no way that we've made it and we've got a long way to go. Well, the, the drive is still there. Yep. Um, yeah. But I think for, for certainly for, uh, and I, I understand that and I, I, th I think that's also human nature you know I've I've talked to other guests about this that no matter what we we tend to 
we tend to minimize the things we achieve and and maximize the things that we still want to achieve um but i think for anyone just tuning into you who doesn't know you at all they go wow this guy's this guy has smashed it you know like having done that career change and to get to where you are now um just uh, i like to ask people if if i can remember uh during the interview you mentioned your wife when along all this journey did you meet your wife to be honest at the same time as i was transitioning out of finance into creative then so we met while i was at st james's place and yeah she was mega in in helping the transition across um, she's always been incredibly supportive you know she is at home with our daughter and making sure that everything is is good but the best thing about her is she is so empathetic empathetic you know she i i've always been a worrier and i've always taken things very personally and emotionally and i suffered hard with anxiety so this sounds ridiculous now but there were times when somebody might remove me on facebook and it would hurt i'd be what what have i done what have i what have i done so that that person has removed me on facebook and it doesn't matter what the reason was you know they might have just been having a car and we haven't spoken in a while but anything like that made me question everything and especially when i was starting i felt that if i'd upset somebody or somebody spoke badly of something that i may or may not have done that it would ruin the business i was so concerned about reputation and what people perceived of me and the business that i was always frightened to death of upsetting anybody and i i often feel that i am the person that will back down and apologize even if i haven't actually done anything wrong and i will beat myself up over no end of thing and my wife says that it's because i care so much that the business is successful and that we are seen in the right light that at those points anything that might call into doubt or question us or what we could be doing was too much for me to handle in some respects it really did you know make me suffer and I've, and I've gotten better with that over the years and I think that as I've grown in to this business and knowing kind of what we do and how we do it and you know I don't treat people badly but sometimes circumstances just go against you and people take their own view on things and I always say that there are three views or three positions in any any argument there's mm-hmm. let's say there's my view there's your view and there's a middle view which is the real view that nobody will ever know because they'll hear my story and your story and there's something in the middle that's actually true Mm. so yeah sometimes circumstance just goes against you and i I struggle with it because i don't like bad blood and i don't like bad feeling but i especially don't like people to have a negative perception of me so i work hard to try and make sure there is no negative perception of me because i just don't want there to be any reason for people not to use us for photography and film Fair enough. I think um, lots of people could relate to lots of what you said. The thing about I, I think of a friend particularly when he said about people, you know, unfriending you on Facebook. I, I've got a friend who really takes that to heart. People stop following on 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 Instagram. Well, congratulations on on all your success with it, Spencer. Like it's um it's a brilliant story, and I really appreciate you sharing it with me. Uh, I think it would offer a lot of inspiration. I, I, I suspect there's a lot of people in um, various kinds of corporate jobs in offices 
who kind of fancy doing something more creative and taking the kind of leap that you did and and you've kind of shared um a blueprint for how it can be done so so thank you for that hey if it helps anybody great i'm i still don't see it but thank you for letting me tell my story (laughs) Um, well it was my pleasure to have you on thank you very much thank you that was my interview with spencer i hope you enjoyed it if you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast and think it's a worthwhile venture, you can support it on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash patspodcast. I'd really appreciate any contribution you see fit to give. It will help me invest more time in the podcast and continue finding interesting stories. Alternatively, you could leave a rating and review on whatever site you listen to your podcasts or simply share it with your family and friends. Any of the above would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Pat's Podcast. I have a very exciting guest in the works for next time, which I will leave as a surprise for now. Watch this space in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 